Good morning. If you would, please, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, where we have the scripture for this morning's message. John chapter 10. And we will be reading verses 1 through 21. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of the one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for your word, and we pray that indeed you would open up uh, this truth to our hearts, that you would plant its seeds deep within, that you would cause the fruit of your spirit to grow in great abundance, and that it would manifest itself in 30, 60, or even 100-fold, all to the glory and praise of your name. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. We definitely live in an age and in a period of history where public relations is certainly one of the more important functions that we see carried out by companies, by governments, by organizations. Companies want to project a certain image of themselves. You could probably bring to mind company logos, uh, company slogans. Well, the same is said for politicians. I think in our own day, politicians and rulers want to convey an image as to who they are. They want to convey an image of strength. They want to convey an image of confidence. 
They want to convey an image uh, of trust so that the people who are under their rule look to them and will look to them respectfully and will uh, appear so that they will uh, draw, be drawn to them and they will trust their leadership. Think, for example, of President George W. Bush, who a number of years ago uh, donned the flight suit of a pilot and landed on an aircraft carrier so that he could uh, present an image of military strength. Uh, Perhaps it doesn't strike us in the same way, uh, but think of Vladimir Putin, who in the past has liked to take pictures of himself riding shirtless on a horse, uh, because that, at least in Russian culture, conveys an image of strength and confidence. I'm not so sure that that works in our culture. Nevertheless, these politicians in our own day Uh, This is not the first time that political leaders or kings have done such things. In the ancient Near East, even in the times significantly before the days of Jesus, uh, the kings of the period portrayed themselves as strong shepherds. For example, the Mesopotamian sun god Shamash was described as a shepherd over all. Ashurbanipal, the 7th century BC Neo-Assyrian king uh, in the walls of his palace portrayed himself as a shepherd slaying lions, protecting the sheep, which were essentially his people. I think that this particular context, the fact that in the ancient Near East, kings portrayed themselves as powerful shepherds is the chief reason as to why Jesus here in John chapter 10 takes up the imagery and the figure of a shepherd. Except what Jesus wanted his people to know is a twofold message. First of all, he wanted his people to know that he and no other was the good shepherd. He and he alone is the good shepherd of his people, the good king of his people, But then second, what is so important for us to recognize is that Jesus takes the imagery of the strong, confident, and powerful shepherd, and he turns it upside down. He turns it upside down, and that he says what is essentially unthinkable for many of the kings of that particular period of time, and that he says that he was willing to lay down his life for his sheep. He was willing to lay his life down for his sheep. You see, kings in this era were certainly willing to defend their sheep. They were certainly willing to exercise strength and power in the defense of their sheep, of their people. But you will not find kings in this particular point in history, let alone, I suspect, in our own day, willing to, voluntarily to lay their lives down for their sheep. I remember one time I was preaching a message on the 23rd Psalm, and after I descended the pulpit, one of the members of the church came up to me and said, I take offense at the fact that the Bible compares me to a sheep. I said, well, it's not my problem. (laughs) Take it up with the Lord. He's the one that has compared you to a sheep. He says, I take offense because sheep are mere chattel. It's property. They're animals to be used. They were animals to be slaughtered. 
Moreover, they're not very intelligent. And I think that that begins to get at the reason as to why a shepherd in this particular period of time would not willingly lay his life down for that which was chattel, for that which was a mere commodity. And yet Jesus says precisely this, that he was willing to lay his life down for his sheep. So what I want us to do is I want us to understand and I want us to explore the significance of Jesus' statement so that we can understand better why Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I lay my life down for the sheep. And so first, that requires us to examine uh, Israel's bad shepherds. So we will first look at Israel's bad shepherd. And then secondly, we want to ask, ask the question and answer, why does Jesus describe himself as the good shepherd? And then third and finally, I want us to reflect about how we, as Christ's sheep, should respond to Jesus' teaching. So what is it that precipitated Christ's discourse? What is it that led him to the point that he was uh, willing to say, I am the good shepherd and I lay my life down for the sheep? Well, in John chapter 9, it's important that we take note of the events that occurred just prior to Jesus' statements and that Jesus was criticized for healing a blind man on the Sabbath. What is fascinating, and at the same time discouraging and even sad, is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the men who had studied the Old Testament, and I suspect had memorized massive portions of it, those who were most familiar with Israel's history, with Israel's scriptures, had tripped over the miracle because they were so dead set on condemning Jesus no matter what he did. They were so intent and so insistent to condemn Jesus. They were more interested in preserving their own position of authority, their own pride of place, and so they excommunicated the formerly blind man. The only thing that this man had had happened to him is that Jesus healed him of his blindness. And for this miraculous healing, the religious leaders did not look to him with awe, but rather they despised him and instead they excommunicated him. You see, Jesus identified himself as the son of man, which is another way of saying, I am the last Adam. I am the one who will take the creation which has been turned upside down by sin and I will turn it right side up again. I am Israel's true king. And here it was, the man who was blind was able by the eyes of faith to perceive who Jesus really was and thus placed his faith in him. And yet those who could see were still nevertheless blind to Jesus' true identity. And so it's this turn of events that motivated Christ to explain his own ministry in terms of being the good shepherd. But why is it that he would raise this particular image? Well, the answer comes to us 
from the prophet Ezekiel in the 34th chapter, where we read this beginning in verses 2 and following. Ezekiel 34, verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound them up, or nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains. And on every high hill, yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. You see, Jesus invokes the imagery of the shepherd because he's contrasting his own ministry, that of being a shepherd, with the ministry of the religious leaders. They were being bad shepherds. They were only interested in maintaining their position of influence and of power. Rather than feeding the sheep of Israel, they were feeding upon the sheep of Israel. Rather than seeking to bring the balm of the gospel to heal the sheep of Israel, they were leading them astray. Rather than going out, and seeking the lost sheep of Israel to bring them to Israel's one true shepherd, they were driving the sheep of Israel away, scattering them. And as the prophet Ezekiel said, there was no shepherd. There was no shepherd. They were simply serving their own selfish interests. And so this, I believe, is the chief reason as to why Jesus invokes this imagery. One of the things that I like to do with, especially the Gospel of John, it occurs in the other Gospels. But I believe that what John really wanted us to see is how Jesus essentially takes the Old Testament scriptures and he wraps himself in them. And that he continually makes reference back to the Old Testament to show how he himself is the very embodiment of the promises and the prophecies that the prophets of long ago spoke of. And so Jesus here is wrapping himself in this robe, if you will, of these Old Testament prophecies. And in this particular case, he's drawing upon this imagery from the prophet Ezekiel so that he can contrast the faithless ministry of the scribes and the Pharisees with his own faithful ministry. And so this brings us to our second point, which is Jesus the Good Shepherd. This is why Jesus in verses 1 and 2 He contrasts the teaching and the actions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes with his own actions 
And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. I mean, Jesus is not mincing words here. He very directly calls the religious leaders thieves and robbers. And so instead of the actions and the sinful leadership of the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he says throughout this discourse that he would lead his sheep. That he would lead his sheep. That he would come to redeem the lost sheep of Israel. And he speaks of this in terms of calling out to his sheep, where his sheep would hear his voice and come to him. Now, this imagery may be lost a little bit on us, particularly because of the different cultural ways in which the ancient Near Eastern culture uh, operated, and even to a certain extent to this day still operates, and Western culture operates in terms of how we herd sheep. In the West, we drive sheep. Maybe you've seen sheepdogs, where the sheepdogs go and chase after the sheep, nipping at their heels to drive them into the pen or to drive them out to the field. I've seen uh, videos of shepherds not riding horses, but riding four-wheelers, where they drive the sheep. If you uh, have seen the movie Babe, Uh, the pig movie, Uh, you you see the Australian sheepdogs featured in that movie where they're driving the sheep, barking and nipping and biting. Well, it's not so in the Middle East. In the Middle East, they do not drive sheep. They lead sheep. You could have two or three different flocks of sheep around one watering hole, and all it takes is for the shepherd to call out to his sheep with his distinct call, with his distinct voice, that the sheep hear it. And as the shepherd begins to walk away, the different sheep of the different herds will begin to disentangle themselves, and they separate and will follow their shepherd. So there's no driving of the sheep, but rather it's calling of the sheep. And Jesus uses this imagery to say, I am going to call my sheep. My sheep will hear my voice. In other words, regardless of the noisy din that comes from the false teachers and all of their pontification, all of their pomposity, all of the hot air that they send towards the sheep of Israel. Jesus says, I will simply call to my sheep. They will hear me. They will recognize my voice and they will follow me. Once again, when Jesus says this, it's not simply the immediate cultural context that serves as the background, but rather I believe it's Ezekiel chapter 34, this significant passage from the prophet that speaks of the shepherds of Israel, those who were sinful and who were only interested in preserving their own place and power in contrast to God as the shepherd of Israel. 
Again, in Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in verse 11, we hear this, For thus God says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they have been scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pastures, and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lay, lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. I think this particular passage from the prophet invests Christ's own statements that he was the good shepherd of Israel with greater weight and significance. You see, Jesus was not merely invoking an illustration. This wasn't merely simply a teaching tool that Jesus used, although I suspect that it carried that illustrative weight. Rather, Jesus was laying claim to the promise that God had made through the prophet Ezekiel that God himself would lead his sheep, that he would go and seek them out, that he himself would feed them. Did you hear how many times God said through the prophet Ezekiel in verses 11 of chapter 34, I will seek out my sheep. I will feed them. I will seek what was lost. I will myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. How many times God himself says, I will do this. I will do this. And now here is Jesus, God in the flesh saying, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Jesus was the very enfleshed antithesis of the evil shepherds, God in the flesh who would personally lead his sheep. And this is not only a fulfillment ultimately of the prophet Ezekiel and his prophecy from chapter 34, but it's something that goes all the way back to the days of Moses. When we hear Moses say in Numbers 27, verses 16 and following, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So here Jesus wraps himself in this garment of the Old Testament promises and prophecies the, the shadows, the, the types. And he tells the people in verse 3 that he himself would call them by name and lead them out, that his sheep would follow him and would not follow a stranger, according to verses 4 and 5. And yet, despite his clarity, despite the strong and evident connections to the Old Testament that Jesus draws. We read in verse 6 that the crowds still 
did not understand. And so Jesus gives them another version of the same when he says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And so he contrasts again his own ministry with that of the religious leaders, saying the thief, that is the religious leaders, only steal, kill, and destroy. See, note the stark contrast here between Jesus and the religious leaders. Here they were seeking to kill Jesus, to drive the people of Israel away from their one true shepherd. And so it's on this stage that we finally arrive at Jesus' famous saying, beginning in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Now, Jesus is not saying here that he would die a martyr's death. That is, that somehow he was at the mercy of the wicked plans of the religious leaders. But what he does here is he essentially turns the shepherding imagery on its head. Ashurbanipal wanted to present himself as a strong and powerful king. And so thus he was slaying lions. And I suspect that if you were to ask him, would you be willing to die for your people? Would you be willing to offer yourself up as a sacrifice? I suspect he would have said no. Notice that I said sacrifice. I think many a king would be willing to say, yes, I will lead my people in battle. And if necessary, I will die in battle. Such is a courageous and glorious way to go in the minds of many. But Jesus does not say, I will lead my people in battle. He says, I will lay down my life for the sheep. I will offer myself in sacrifice. Think about how those words rest in the cradle of Israel's Old Testament scriptures. When Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd and that he lays himself down and lays down his life for his sheep, in the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to sacrificially offer sheep to the Lord. It's not the shepherd that is supposed to lay down his life. Rather, it was the sheep who are supposed to be offered in sacrifice. So not only does Jesus overturn the popular cultural imagery of his day with the powerful king projecting himself and, and characterizing himself as the powerful shepherd, 
but he's taking the Old Testament scriptures and he is saying that what you see in the Old Testament sacrificial system with the slaughter of sheep for the sacrifices finds its culmination in me. It finds its fulfillment in me. And so this is why he says, I'm not a martyr. I'm not at the mercy of the plans of the religious leaders. And Jesus says this quite explicitly in verses 17 and 18. Therefore, my father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Now, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my father. Jesus is saying that he had the authority to lay down his life. He was voluntarily sacrificing himself. Moreover, by saying that he had the authority to take it up again, he essentially is claiming to be God in the flesh because who but God can say, I will lay down my life and then on the flip side, I will take it back up again. I think that we can summarize Christ's teaching in Paul's famous statement from the second chapter of Philippians, Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Christ was saying, I'm the good shepherd, and I will lay down my life for you, my sheep, those of you who hear my voice and follow me. Now, after Christ made these statements, I think it should come as no surprise that the crowds were divided, as we read in verse 19. Some thought he was demon-possessed. Others thought that he was truthful given his ability to heal the blind man because they said, would a demon truly be able to perform such a miracle? But notice who's absent. Notice who's absent in the conclusion of this narrative. The people flounder upon the rocks of uncertainty. And where are the religious leaders? Where are they? They neither have the courage to stand up for their own convictions, to say Jesus is a false teacher, nor do they have the humility to submit to the authority of God's word and point the people to Christ and saying, herein lies the words of truth, herein is God in the flesh. And so they let them flounder upon the uneven ground of doubt and suspicion rather than leading them onto the steady and firm ground of the gospel of Christ. They were bad shepherds, and Jesus was and is the good shepherd. And so this brings us to our third and final point, that as we reflect upon what this passage teaches us, I think that we certainly need to take a look at the shepherds in our midst 
whether they be the shepherds in our congregation, the shepherds in our denomination, or in the church at large, there are certainly many self-serving pastors out there who uh, the only thing that they want to do is they want to build empires and fiefdoms around their own personalities rather than wanting to point people to Christ. My wife always likes to joke She says, the next church that you serve in, I want you to have a billboard, and I want your picture up there and my picture next to you. Now, she's always joking about this, okay? So it's not in the least bit serious. But it does make you wonder when you see these billboards and and there are these flashy pictures. You want to say, "Who, who exactly are you promoting? What exactly are you trying to build? Are you promoting Christ? Does the message of John the Baptist lie deep within your heart? May he increase and may I decrease? Are you continually pointing away from yourself and to Christ? You see, a good shepherd will continually point his sheep to Christ, to the one true shepherd. Through the preaching of your pastor, The one true shepherd calls his sheep. He calls you and you can hear his voice and follow him. And thus in this respect, brothers and sisters in Christ, you can rejoice that you do have a good pastor who feeds you Christ, the manna from heaven, and who points you continually uh, to Christ. And in this regard, you can hear the words of life each and every Lord's Day where you can have Christ, your good shepherd, guiding you, giving you counsel through his word, giving you encouragement when you lack uh, encouragement, giving you words of discipline and correction when you need to hear them as you hear the law of Christ read each and every Lord's Day. But most importantly, as you hear the words of life, that you recognize that Christ indeed is your good shepherd and that he has laid down his life for you so that not only would you have the forgiveness of your sins, but that you can also lay claim and title to eternal life and have the hope that your sins cannot rise against you on the last day to accuse you and to condemn you, but rather Jesus has buried them in his tomb, and because of his resurrection from the dead, death and sin has no claim against you. Because Jesus is your good shepherd, and because your faithful shepherd points you continually to Jesus But at the same time, beloved in Christ, our prayer should be is that the message of Jesus resonates in our hearts so that not only can we be thankful for the good shepherds that Jesus places in our life, that he calls into the service of his church to preach and to promote the gospel, but so that we collectively together as the body of Christ would mirror and would shine forth the character of our good shepherd. You know, moments ago, Pastor Morsh talked about husbands uh, ruling their households, wives submitting uh, to their husband's authority. And as Paul speaks of those roles in Ephesians chapter 5, he does so by saying that, Husbands, do you lay down your life for your 
bride? Do you serve your family husbands sacrificially? That language, I suspect, comes straight from John chapter 10. Do we, as the people of God, mirror that sacrificial character of our Savior? Do we, as the people of God, seek to improve our own position? Do we uh, manifest hatred and violence and anger? Or do we manifest the sacrificial love of Christ? So often in life, we end up manifesting the works of the flesh rather than the fruit of the Spirit. And so often I think that we're under the misapprehension that the life that we live as Christians is supposed to be manifest in great and fantastic and glorious things. We look for big actions. We look for amazing outcomes. But what we don't realize is that actually 99.9% of the Christian life gets lived out in very small and often unnoticed ways. When someone speaks a word of anger towards you, and you respond with sacrificial love and extend words of kindness, therein lies the character of our Good Shepherd and the fruit of His Holy Spirit. When someone wrongs you and you willingly extend words of forgiveness, therein lies the character of our good shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep. When someone takes advantage of you, treats you with anger, and you respond in kindness and love, such is the nature of the people of God, of Christ's sheep, if they are truly following their shepherd. But beloved, in all of this, we must recognize that our capacity and ability to reflect the character of our good shepherd does not come from us. That should certainly be evident from this passage of Scripture as the religious leaders were operating under their own steam. And they only produced wickedness and evil and hatred. But rather, our ability and capacity to love in a manner that is reflective of our Savior's love, is to rest upon His love, to rest upon His sacrifice, to rest in the power of His grace that comes through His sacrificial giving of His life on our behalf. In all of this, beloved in Christ, rejoice, because Moses and Ezekiel prophesied long ago that Jesus, the good shepherd, has come to lay down his life for his sheep, for you, for you. Moreover, not only has he laid down his life, but that he has taken it up again that we might have life. And at this very moment, he continues to lead, to provide, and to encourage the sheep of his fold. I want to conclude 
with the words of the 23rd Psalm, which I suspect also were in the back of Christ's mind as he identified himself as the Good Shepherd. These are the words that I want you to think about, not only now, but the rest of this day and for days to come. Except I want us to do so as we listen to the words of the 23rd Psalm. I want us to listen to these words through Christ's statements where he identifies himself as the good shepherd of his sheep. Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Jesus leads me beside still waters. Jesus restores my soul. Jesus leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you, Lord Jesus, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You, Lord Jesus, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. O Lord, we are grateful that you have sent your Son, your only begotten Son, to be our Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd who has laid down his life for us. O Father God, we give thanks for this tremendous gift. For indeed, we all like sheep have gone astray, each upon his own way. And yet your Son has left the 99 in order to find us lost and wandering sheep. We give thanks, O Lord, for your unspeakable love. We give thanks, O Lord, for your tremendous sacrifice on our behalf, that by laying down your life, we have life and have it abundantly. We give thanks, Lord Jesus, that you not only lead us, but that you feed us, that you bind up our hearts when they are broken, that you heal us from the disease and the infection of sin, that you fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit to enable us to repent of our wickedness and to turn that we might love others and that we might do so sacrificially. We pray, O Lord, that indeed we would reflect your loving character to the world around us, that we would show one another sacrificial love, that we would show the unbelieving world around us sacrificial love, even in the face of its wickedness, even when we are mistreated, even when we are persecuted. We pray, O Lord, that you would manifest the character of your Son in us, that we might bring glory to your name and honor the name of Christ, our Good Shepherd. We thank you for leading us in the path of righteousness. We thank you for comforting us in the valley of the shadow of death. We give thanks, O Lord, because you have filled our cups until they overflow. 
And we praise your name because your goodness and mercy do not merely follow us, but rather that they pursue us all the days of our life. And so we give thanks for all of these blessings and pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our good shepherd. Amen.